0: The World's Game heads indoors this summer as the Continental Indoor Soccer League invades major markets across the United States and Mexico. The -the off-the-wall action of indoor soccer, played within the confines of a hockey rink, features high-scoring and hard-hitting physical play. This fast-paced excitement translates into a shot on goal per minute and over 15 goals per game. Many of the CISL's 12 teams are owned by NBA and NHL owners, committed to making soccer a major league sport in North America. The Continental Indoor Soccer League is the most successful professional soccer league in the history of the United States to date, with teams coast to coast. In 1995, the CISL hosted its first ever All-Star Game in Portland's Memorial Coliseum, with the East working overtime to defeat the West 9-8. This year's CISL All-Star action shifts to the beautiful America West Arena in Phoenix, Arizona, as East meets West with a duel in the desert. The CISL is not just soccer, it's family fun for sports fans and entertainment enthusiasts alike. For the second consecutive year, the CISL surpassed the 1 million mark in fan attendance during the 1995 season. 1996 should see more attendance records shattered as the CISL enters its fourth season. For the fourth consecutive season, CISL games will be broadcast on Prime Sports into more than 48 million homes across the United States. CISL games are also televised live each week on Televisa throughout Mexico. A unique variety of new sponsorship opportunities exist within the CISL, targeting the CISL's family demographic. The Continental Indoor Soccer League, ahead above the rest. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
2: Well, greetings. How you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. You have found, once again, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. That's what you're here for, and that's what I'm here for, and uh, we appreciate your uh, your finding us and uh, uh, downloading us and putting us in your earbuds. Whatever it is that uh, you do to ingest this little show, we appreciate it, and uh, we hopefully uh, will entertain you for a little while, I'll try to kind of distract you from uh, the ills of the world and the uh, various challenges that continue to buffet us all. Uh, we're all in this proverbially together, and uh, I hope you're doing all the right things to stay safe and sane and uh, helping your fellow neighbor who may not necessarily be uh, doing well or could use some uh, some support and uh, assistance. It's all good. That's uh, what keeps the world hopefully spinning around in positive directions, and let's uh, let's keep it that way please, shall we? Uh, We welcome to our microphones once again, our pal from about 10 or 11 weeks ago, Ronnie Weinstein, uh, who you may remember uh, back from uh, an earlier episode where uh, I guess it was what episode number 166. uh, We talked about uh, the Los Angeles Lasers of the Major Indoor Soccer League. Uh, They a a creature uh, of Uh, The Fabulous Forum in Los Angeles and uh, where Ronnie Weinstein essentially got his uh, general management slash presidential chops uh, running uh, that franchise. And it's a fascinating conversation and and a really good preface uh, for this week's discussion, our return visit with Ronnie, as we talk about what came out of the ashes of that uh, long ago franchise in the MISL, the Lasers, were the seeds of this week's focus, the Continental. Indoor soccer league, uh, not a uh, full, if you will, successor to the major indoor soccer league, but possibly uh, considered to be at least a uh, a branch, I guess, of what what followed uh, the demise of what was then called the major soccer league in nineteen what was it ninety two or so. Uh, this the CISL, the Continental Indoor Soccer League, a topic, by the way, uh, we've kind of uh, uh, grazed around uh, in a couple of previous episodes. Certainly, we uh, we talked about it a bit uh, with Ronnie previously, but also our pal, Ken Tomash, uh, in, way back in episode number 39, we talked about the Indianapolis slash Indiana, uh, renamed uh, f- after a couple of years, twisters of the CISL and Ken, uh, probably the, uh, the unofficial slash official historian of the CISL and, and a whole bunch of other soccer, uh, statistics and attendance and all that kind of stuff for that matter. But the CISL was a very interesting creature. It, uh, was uh, pretty much the, uh, the, the one of the two indoor soccer leagues that sort of came after the demise of the MISL slash MSL. Uh, the other being the National Professional Soccer League, which was uh, still going in the indoor uh, uh, season of the winter, uh, which was uh, largely what the MISL was prior. Uh, but the difference with the CISLs, we'll get into with, uh, with Ronnie in a second, the first and only commissioner of the league and arguably its founder, too. Uh, and we get into the origin story of that, too, and, and why and how and some of the people involved. Uh, the CISL was a summer only endeavor, and that's what uh, made it unique and successful for much of the 1990s, uh, backed with the uh, the imprint of uh, a lot of very uh, successful uh, and influential owners in the NBA and the NHL, who were very convinced, uh, much at Ronnie's and uh, his uh, team's uh, insistence, that. Hey, let's fill the dates during the summer months when the uh, hockey and the basketball ain't being played, uh, and let's uh, let's keep this fantastic product known as indoor soccer that uh, sort of fell to an untimely demise uh, alive and literally and figuratively kicking uh, in the summer months. And boy, it became that and 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 more so. Uh, if you remember teams like the. Uh, the Detroit Neon, who for the last season of their lives were known as the Detroit Safari, uh, branded by uh, car manufacturers. Uh, we mentioned the Indianapolis slash Indiana Twisters, uh, the Las Vegas Dust Devils, the Pittsburgh Stingers, uh, the San Diego Sockers made an appearance in the league, the Seattle Sea Dogs, the last uh, 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 champions of the league of the CISL in, in, uh, in 1997. Um, a whole host of teams. Uh, A lot of them, not all, though, uh, were uh, owned. Either their arenas were owned or uh, they are co-located with uh, teams that were in the NBA and the NHL. And ironically, as we'll get into our conversation with Ronnie in just a moment, uh, it was also the demise of the CISL as the owners of uh, those major league teams and arenas from basketball and hockey kind of had their own sort of idea of where CISL soccer should go. Uh, versus uh, a growing number of, uh, let's call them independent owners, those without uh, that ownership uh, tie, if you will, to the NBA and to the NHL. And uh, that ultimately uh, resulted in what became a split and maybe the demise of the CISL. And, and many would argue uh, kind of the end of the, if you will, the top tier modern era of indoor soccer. It really sort of has never kind of approached the pinnacle of fandom uh, and, uh, uh, you know, enthusiasm and uh, and just and top-quality play, top-notch play. No disrespect to the MASL that exists today or, or some of the other uh, leagues that sort of have come and gone since then, but the CISL was arguably the uh, the last best gasp, I guess, of top-tier professional indoor soccer in this country, and that is the, uh, the conversation uh, this week with Ronnie Weinstein. It also features people like Jerry Buss and uh, Jerry Colangelo, uh, and a whole host of other very influential uh, owners uh, and operators in uh, the uh, the major uh, leagues of the NBA, the NHL, uh, various arenas. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and Ronnie is a wonderful conversationalist and has some great memories to share. As we get to our chat about the CISL in just a few moments' time, stick around, uh, and uh, before we go uh, to that uh, chat, uh, we want to uh, circle around our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, our sponsor of the week, our pal P.F. Wilson. And yeah, if you remember, we uh, we actually determined what P.F. Uh, meant. Uh, we were a guest on his, uh, his podcast uh, gee, a few weeks ago uh, called P.F.'s Tape Recorder. It's a hoot. Uh, f- uh, search that up and give it a listen. It's a great conversation. And we uh, kind of explain in our little uh, tortuous way what uh, we've been trying to do with this little show. Uh, and uh, P.F. was... Uh, Kind enough to indulge us for almost uh, almost 50 minutes of conversation. But Patrick Fra- Francois, there you go. That's the mystery of P.F. Wilson, uh, is the uh, uh, our key link to uh, a wonderful site uh, and one of our longest sponsors. It's OldSchoolShirts.com, and we have a promo code for you. It's Good Seats, and uh, there you will uh, enjoy by using that promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. 10% off all of your purchases, including... How conveniently a whole bunch of shirts that uh, circle around the CISL, the Continental Indoor Soccer League. This week's topic: If you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Sting- Stingers, yes, of course, the Pittsburgh Stingers. They played in the uh, in the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, uh, no doubt. Uh, our pa- our pal uh, Patrick McCarthy is probably very uh, uh, intrigued with that shirt and that story. The Seattle Sea Dogs, uh, commemorating uh, the sh- the shirt commemorating their uh, one and only and CISL last championship season. Uh, you're a fan of the Indiana Twisters from um, from our Ken Tomash conversation a couple of years back. Uh, all those and more. Plenty of other sports, plenty of other teams, plenty of other leagues, plenty of other just pop culture memories, all of them there for you and waiting and a treasure trove at that at OldSchoolShirts.com. Hell, there's even an LA Laser shirt, as we alluded to a couple of weeks back with Ronnie the first time. Uh, but if you want to use that, it's the great laser logo multicolored uh, is there in quality t-shirt form too. Again, it's oldschoolshirts.com and uh, the promo code good seats, 10% off. Thank you, PF, sorry, Patrick Francois and uh, all of your friends at uh, oldschoolshirts.com in Cincinnati, Ohio. We uh, give you the sort of uh, sports uh, history salute this week and uh, we appreciate your patronage. We appreciate you listening. Uh, And here it is, our chat, our part two, if you will with the great Ronnie Weinstein, as we get into the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Fascinating chat. Here it comes. Please, as always, enjoy. For the benefit of our audience who has not heard uh, our uh, uh, just short of scintillating conversation about the uh, Los Angeles Lasers experience, uh, we, we don't need to revisit the entirety of that, but... It's important as where, where that story sort of left off because that is obviously the the seeds, the germ, the kernel of uh, this thing we are going to get into, which is the CISL, the Continental Indoor Soccer League. So maybe just a little bit of a, of a, a tad of uh, how you got involved with indoor soccer and the lasers, and I'm guessing uh, all roads lead to a one Jerry Buss as the sort of uh, originator of that.
1: So It actually evolved from the creation of the Senate Seed Program, which, as I told uh, you earlier, uh, was the evolution of sweets in the United States, and we were looking for product. And uh, it just happened across his desk. He reached out to his son, Johnny Buss, and your listeners that weren't paying attention uh, earlier my relationship with Jerry Buss was somewhat fragile strong personally fragile also personally very very interesting dynamic we had so the day he entertained the idea of bringing indoor soccer into the forum and underneath the umbrella of California sports with the Lakers and Kings he called upon his eldest son Johnny who had just been in my wedding, one of my dearest friends in the world. And uh, Johnny was not going to go on a venture without me. So he went down to meet his father in Palm Springs. At that time, Jerry Bus owned the Ocotillo Lodge. Johnny and I go down there. Jerry doesn't know I'm with Johnny. I hide in the pool for the entirety of their conversation about bringing indoor soccer to the forum in probably a hundred degree heat. Little did I know it was going to be that long of a conversation, so I'm hiding behind the edge of the pool, overhearing their conversation. Finally, at the end of the conversation, Johnny gets the, uh, um, i got to think of a good word for your listeners, I don't want to the strength, how's that for a politically correct word, uh, to tell his father that I'm there. And thus, the relationship Jerry, Buss, and I had continued in a very positive manner. And uh, that's how indoor soccer was created in the forum. And that's how that is the beginning after my Laker and King days.
2: Well, but you mentioned you mentioned product, right? And um, as we talked about in our, our previous episode, of course, I encourage our listeners to uh, to search that one up almost as, uh, as a prelude. So maybe stop what you're listening to right now and go listen to that one, then come back and get to this very point. You know, one of the uh, the hurdles, right, that uh, this uh, Lasers franchise ultimately had, right, was uh, dates that actually made it a viable proposition, right? Because you got the Lakers, you got the Kings. By the way, the Lakers, obviously, of championship caliber at that point, the Kings sort of on the ascent to become so uh, later on. Uh, but then also concerts and stuff. I mean, there wasn't, as you sort of alluded to previously, right, not a whole lot left over to fill in with products. So I I, I guess I, I, head, I head scratch a little in that, OK, yeah, fill in some dates, but it also doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of dates really of quality to
0: fill for the lasers.
1: No. And uh, exactly like you stated earlier, if you go back to the previous episode the listeners don't understand we were definitely the stepchild within the building made it extremely difficult to become successful uh when your dates are being moved and i believe back at that time and unfortunately jerry dr bus didn't react as suit as quick as i would have liked him to with the other ownership in the major indoor soccer league because he had an unbelievable opportunity at the outset to plant the seed of moving the se- season um, slowly and gradually into the summer months where there was no competition. So, yes, we it was a difficult task from square one, getting good dates and getting especially a family-oriented product like indoor soccer was at the time, getting people to come indoors in the winter on a weeknight um, with kids having school at the following dates. So, yeah, day, dates were extremely uh, difficult to come by, and it definitely made our task more difficult. So
2: without- I- yeah. So one of the things we didn't get into, and this sort of uh, further sets the table, right? I, I think it's, uh, it's lost sort of on uh, uh, people sort of following along on the, the, the sort of the timeline of all this is that in the sort of mid to late 80s, right, the MISL sort of went from uh, being sort of a, a juggernaut to relatively quickly being sort of uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat shaky. And, and that uh, included... Uh, The original commissioner, Earl Foreman, coming back into the fold, and I would imagine uh, arguably uh, that sort of change and and redoubling into uh, something that maybe uh, Dr. Jerry could have been a bit more, uh, I don't want to say forceful, but more uh, involved in because uh, we also have to remember that the uh, mid 1980s is when the outdoor uh, professional game essentially collapsed with the demise of the NASL. And there really was really nothing in the vacuum to sort of sort of pick up. I mean, there's a bunch of, you know, semi pro kinds of things sort of soldiering on outdoors. But the quote unquote summer uh, was really kind of now absent of the outdoor game, which had already been sort of challenged and or questioned from the indoor sort of enthusiasts anyway. But I I guess the point is that it seems like Earl Foreman at the time was trying to leverage now that he was back sort of in, in command. This MISL sort of indoor dominance, frankly, creation into levering into whatever goodness and, and solidness was there into possibly also sort of running the whole show for soccer in this country, perhaps inclusive of outdoor again, sort of year round and, and all that as this sort of lead up to the 94 World Cup, which was sort of dependent on a division one thing. So there's a lot to unpack there. But for these soccer geeks out there, right, there is the MISL was weirdly in this position of perhaps being the resuscitator someday of outdoor again, but maybe off the back of indoor as its uh, launching point.
1: Uh, perfectly put. I, I think if you look at the history and the opportunity that the major indoor soccer league had of, of bringing in the likes of a Dr. Jerry Buss, you know, coming off of Showtime, the Lakers World Championships, they should erode that wave. Like there was no tomorrow, Tim. And that was the mistake that Major Indoor Soccer League, one of the mistakes the Major Indoor Soccer League met, uh, you know, faced. And at the same time, I'll put it on Jerry Bus. He put a lot of responsibility on Johnny and I at the beginning, and he believed in us. And it wasn't until the Johnny-Jimmy transition, the Johnny Bus to the Jim Bus transition, that Jerry basically woke up and said, hey, I better get more involved. And by that time, these egos in the MISL were quite large because these people are extremely successful in their own right in the corporate world, which actually plays a huge part in the continental indoor soccer league. But the reality here is these guys' egos are so big. They didn't want to turn to a Jerry Buss and look to him for guidance and welcome him in. I, I don't, I can't tell you, I don't believe there's one owner in the major indoor soccer league that picked up the phone and called Jerry Buss and said, we need you. We need your help. We need your guidance. So they did miss an opportunity because at that time, the MISL was starting its decline um, in the mid to late '80s, and that could have been the pinnacle of taking it to the next step of leading us to, like you said, the World Cup and a professional outdoor soccer league, et cetera.
2: Yeah, and tied up with that is the sort of soccer politics of being Division One, quote unquote. There was no Division One uh, demarcation; NASL was gone. Then none of the leagues, sort of in its wake, were doing it, and, and it seemed like Foreman was trying to kind of sort of angle to become, oddly, this Division one uh, label, which then sort of brings in all the sort of uh, World Cup stuff. So I, yeah, I don't want to go sort of down that sort of uh, soccer politics uh, cul-de-sac, but so so how does Jerry uh, and the uh, the Brain Trust, uh, how does the beginning of the end of the lasers uh, come about? Like who, who says what how do you find out uh, what determines the fact that it's going to be done? And then maybe what do you think in the background as that is occurring?
0: Well, the
1: writing was on the wall because Jerry went to, I want to say we went to Cleveland and for the board meeting and Jerry entered the board meeting with Jimmy. This is when Jimmy had gotten taken over for Johnny and told the board very succinctly that if they don't begin to gradually move their league to summer and stop playing, they're paying their players astronomical salaries and don't have a controlled salary cap. The league will fail and he will not be party to it. And that is, I believe that was the beginning of the end for everything.
2: But not everybody wanted to do the summer thing. That was, that was clearly, so that, that was really kind of Jerry's idea or were there others sort of in the MISL that were sort of uh, aligned with that? Or was he just kind of a, a lone wolf, if you will, with that idea?
1: I want to say he was a lone wolf with that idea because I don't think we were a very respected franchise. The Los Angeles Lasers were not looked upon at that time in the in the late '80s in, in in a respectful manner. And I think it was portrayed by the reactions of the other owners. No, I would say he was more of a lone soldier. And you know, when you're when you're losing the kind of money we worked in, at the in the with the Los Angeles Lasers, and you're running as you said, you know, the juggernaut with the Lakers. You know, th- those numbers are a thousand times ours as far as relevance and as far as revenue streams. Uh, it wasn't high on his list, and he wasn't going to allow somebody to take him down a, a path that he wasn't party to and didn't feel like they were doing the proper thing in the business world. Yeah,
2: sure. And and I think a lot of people just generally or maybe naively from the MISL's uh, uh, home offices uh, back in the earlier part of the decade, right, were thinking that, hey, L.A., it's, it's Jerry Buss, it's the, the Fabulous Forum, and, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you know, it's all just going to click, right? But to your point, you know, also not a sort of um, uh, a lot of help on a lot of different fronts, the dates and stuff, but, you know, not maybe taking sort of... Uh, uh, Messrs. bus and, and you guys a little bit more seriously, even though, you know, you're certainly doing as many as best as you could under these sort of constrained circumstances. Right. There's a wealth of knowledge there. Right. So this is a, arguably one of the or if not the at the time, uh, maybe it may be ongoing sort of premier uh, entertainment venues in the country. Right. And there's got to be some goodness there that the other owners could could benefit from. But it, it clearly seems like uh, nobody was listening, especially perhaps uh, to this idea that uh that summer might be the uh the better better way to go how did you, how did you find out then did jerry, jerry call you did you sort of find out in the in the papers or, or and then give us some sense of like where the idea uh goes from sort of uh, it's it's a a, a, a fancy a fanciful notion to maybe we should like put pen to paper and do this now
1: yeah, I think what what happened is he, he came home from Cleveland. I, yeah, uh, it's really vague, you know. We're talking a lot of years ago. I'm old now, Tim. So I'm, I'm not really sure if I was in the room. I have recollection of being in the room, but I also obviously had numerous conversations with him after that point where he came home and said, look, if they don't heed my warning and heed my advice, uh, you know, I, I, see, I don't see a, a rainbow here. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to have to rethink this. So I believe he planted the seed in my head uh of moving moving forward in my own life and that indoor soccer may no may no longer be part of his uh uh repertoire of of events taking place at the forum.
2: So how do you go about it? So what's your how do you he, he kind of, he kind of not so many words sort of whispers in your ear sort of this I won't call it life-altering sort of a, a thought, but I, he pretty much said, look, if you can kind of figure out how to do the summer thing, I'll gladly back you, right? Because he was a big enthusiast of the sport, at least the idea of it and the excitement of it, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Lo- love the sport, Tim. No, he, he loved the game. And so that came that came later. I want to say that was 86-87. We played the 87 88 season and the 89 season, I believe that was our last year. And he actually approached me at the conclusion of our last season and told me he was pulling the plug. That's when he formally told me. And uh, I I think I shared that we were in the back of his limousine. He had a dentist appointment. He said, come with me, Ron. And he told me in the back of the limo, and he said, you can either uh, go to work for foreign boxing or do your own thing. And but, and this was when the seed was planted. I said, I love the game, and if you ever want to develop an indoor soccer league, um, I will bring in some of my NBA and NHL friends and owners, and uh, propose the idea to them. And uh, if you ever want to get back in the game, I'll I'll support you. So not financially, he'll support me with all this business contacts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when the seed was planted. The seed, it came probably a year or two after that board meeting in Cleveland. It didn't happen right away. Just to be clear, Tim, I think he he didn't shut the door right away because, remember, he wanted his children to have something to do and to be employed and to feel like they had some worth. So that was Jim Buss's baby at the time, and uh, I don't think he was prepared to pull the plug on his son as much as he was prepared to pull the plug on the major indoor soccer
2: league. So how do you go about planting, watering, fertilizing, and nurturing this seed? Like, literally, how do you go from, you can recall, idea to practicality and and maybe recognizing that you can actually do this?
1: Wow, okay. So now there's a big transition. So he shuts down. I choose not to go to work for form boxing. Johnny Bus and I decide we are going to start uh, music television for children because at the time it was near the beginning of MTV or at the, at the childhood stages of MTV and he and I both agreed that it was a little off color and Paula Abdul was one of our dear friends. Johnny dated her for quite a while. And, and she
2: was, she was a uh, part-time laser girl in addition to being obviously a well-known Laker girl, right?
1: So we had our own little laser girl who was great and uh we decided we were gonna start music television for children instead of the MTV teen generation. So he and I start Bus Weinstein Productions. We set up an offer, office on Wilshire Boulevard in West LA. And in that uh so we start working and then in typical bus fashion, Johnny meets uh his to be wife at the time, Christy, and gets totally distracted and so much for bus weinstein productions and music television well in the same building on the same floor is this gentleman by the name of george ragdy well george ragdy's sister and i were tour guides together at universal studios in the mid-70s so i was a tour guide at universal studios with this guy george ragdy's sister i bump into george in the hallway he asked me to get involved in raising money for the tech world. We start dabbling and I'm obviously that's not my passion, Tim. I'm a sports guy. I'm into sports management, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not really enthused, but I'm helping him. And he looks at me one day and he says, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, Johnny and I were starting, you know, music television for children. But his father said to me, if you ever develop an indoor soccer league in the summer, I will help you. So I turned to George and I said, you want to, you want to start this project with me? And he said, this is perfect timing because my parents won $17 million in the lottery and maybe they'll help us. So they, we decided we're going to go forward. George goes to his parents. They loan us $35,000 at 12% interest, but it's risk capital. And the only way they get the money back is if we start the league. So they loaned us $35,000 and we utilize that money to fly all over the country and to work with Jerry Buss and to develop all the documentation and everything necessary to pull together the league. That's a long winded answer to your question, by the way.
2: So, okay. So, so Jerry says, Whoa, okay. You've really kind of uh, brought this about. So but there's another Jerry involved too, right? In, in this process. And and arguably this sort of a, so helps maybe cement and or go beyond sort of that sort of lone wolf idea from earlier.
1: Right. So here here's what transpired. So Jerry's excited. You're got, he's like, wow, you're really doing this? We turned to a gentleman that's been my dear friend since the early 80s when we developed the, the, the lasers by the name of Dan Grigsby. Dan Grigsby was the attorney in a a firm called Fine Persick and Friedman, and they were Jerry Buss's outside counsel with the Lakers, and they helped us with the Lakers in-house, and then Dan became the guy assigned to the lasers. So Dan and I became very close, so when we decided to uh, start the Continental Indoor Soccer League, we turned to Dan to draft all the documentations and model it after the NBA. So here we have all the paperwork together. I'm I'm actually training, literally taking trains back and forth from uh, uh, Los Angeles to uh, Rancho Santa Fe, where Jerry lived half the time. And he is helping me, guiding me with all the paperwork, all the documentation. So between Jerry, George, Dan, and myself, we developed the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Perfect. So now you ask about the other Jerry. So Jerry Buss is now talking to all his other owner friends. And the one that he contacts originally is Jerry Colangelo, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. I believe partners at that time in the, uh, in the Arizona Diamondbacks, the, the arena there, the, uh, the Arizona Rattlers, uh, indoor arena football team. And Jerry Colangelo and I hit it off. So George and I fly and meet with Jerry Colangelo. We basically lock down a franchise. He says, if Jerry buses in, I'm in. We go back and tell Jerry about it. And now we have really what became the foundation of the Continental Indoor Soccer League, the Jerry and Jerry show. And that's how Jerry Colangelo got involved.
2: Interesting. So that, in some respects, almost feels like sort of like the the one additional sort of ingredient that kind of just opened all the other doors, right, versus it just being sort of, oh, here's Jerry Buss, again, with the same old idea. Okay, you know, he's going to try to get it launched. But in some respects, I would imagine Colangelo's involvement kind of just made it that much more, shall we say, easy to get meetings and or consideration. Or am I reading too much into that?
1: No, no, no. Actually, actually, Jerry Buss being like a father to me and a mentor to me, um, let, let me give you a little history here. So I want to say it's around 1991, Jerry Buss and Jerry Colangelo called a meeting of all the NBA owners following a board of governors meeting. So 16 NBA and NHL, it was NBA owners, sorry. 16 NBA owners uh, stayed after in Marina Del Rey and met with George and myself and Dan Grigsby. And that charge was led by Buss and Colangelo putting out the collective invitation. However, just prior to that, Irvin Magic Johnson, who at the time was a very dear friend of mine, announced that he is HIV positive. And Jerry Buss checks out. So I really lost Jerry Buss' ear, you know, his partnership at the time for obviously good reason. And he was extremely, extremely distracted. And, you know, I, I didn't even know how he was going to move forward with the Lakers, let alone starting a new league with me. And again, that's where Jerry Colangelo just stepped up to the plate and took over in Jerry Buss's absence. So it was more than just giving people an idea for consideration. He became, he became the lead person and actually conducted the next NBA meeting in New York a few years later, but we'll get into that.
2: Well, all right, so how, um, how do those meetings go, right? So it's, it's NBA and NHL. Um, I guess that the pitch is still primarily – product. The sport is still exciting. Summertime is probably your darkest, uh, uh, dates to, to fill and, uh, maybe with a bit more marketing panache, kid friendly, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, how does that go over? I can't imagine this would be the first or ever, uh, you know, uh, alternate, shall we say, sports league proposition that these, uh, other owners, uh, had heard, right? Certainly arena football was certainly, uh, you know, uh, Kind of getting some traction and you know, a bunch of other things, I'm sure, too. Right. Now, let me be
1: frank, okay? Because remember, I, I didn't go into this being a soccer fan, but what I did realize was the power of the people. And this is probably the strong, I won't even say probably, it was undoubtedly the strongest foundation and the strongest um, uh, business plan. And I say that because of Jerry and Jerry's involvement and dance involvement, not my knowledge. Uh, ever created for a foundation of a league. And when you have power like that behind you and a structure like that, behind, we actually developed, we were the first single entity um, sports league in the country. Uh, and again, we'll get into that, but you asked about the meetings, the meetings were incredibly intense. That first meeting, you know, I, I'm in my early thirties and here I am sitting around a, a room with NBA owners and their governors and I was asked to leave the room. And then Jerry and Jerry came outside with Dan and they said, you have a league under the following conditions. And they laid out all these new parameters of my salary, of the percentage we take, everything. They said, if you want a deal, I, you know, you think back, about today about the shark tank, it's either you take this or leave it. And it was really a shark tank experience. I, you know, now I'm, I've never really thought it through, but that's exactly what happened and uh, they cut down our percentages of ownership they cut down our salaries this and this and the funniest thing is the utah jazz were leading the charge in cutting everything down and the utah jazz never purchased the franchise so that that remains a craw in my in my head uh, till till this day, thirty years later. So,
2: so the NBA, the NBA was really kind of the, uh, the sort of the next step, not the NHL. Or how does the NHL come into play? Right? Is it because the also- NHL
1: came into play after we had the foundation of the uh, after we had the foundation of the NBA? Um, they came in later. They came in in the in the second year that. Uh, Again, we'll get. I'm sure we'll get into that with the with the Pittsburgh team and the uh, um, whoever else came in. There was a couple. A couple of the teams that came in were NHL owners after after first year. Of San Jose and and uh, like I said, uh, Anaheim came in on a on a on a side note through Ogden and and through the through the. Uh, the Ducks and things like that underneath the same umbrella. So, yeah, the NBA set the standard and then the NHL picked up because there were some cross-ownerships of people that owned two teams, uh, NBA and NHL.
2: Got it. So this I mean, this just seems like sort of high order hustling. No, no, no offense. Right. It's it's you're you're in essence, you're, you're getting traction where you can get it. Uh, and and obviously having a handful of NBA owners Certainly is a lot better than just one or now two and now you know it, it it just sort of morphs and then it becomes more of a thing right just like venture capital investing people go oh if so and so is involved maybe I should take a look at this deal so uh, give me give me a sense though of maybe what you can recall that the parameters of the the deal and or your quote unquote league right this is not an NBA collective uh, commitment this is a handful of current nba owners saying hey there's enough here while i where i will take a flyer on this yeah
1: yeah it was the cross ownership teams so um the sacramento kings they own their own building the the sand sharks uh through uh the phoenix suns they own their own building uh jerry Buss obviously owned his own building i don't believe and reunion arena this that, that's interesting because they were one of the originals obviously and that was um, Don Carter, who owned the Dallas Mavericks. Great owner, by the way. Uh, so Jim Thomas, uh, Carter, Dallas, Colangelo, and Buss. They were, they were the stronghold of the NBA from the Western side. And, yeah, that foundation and that cross-ownership, that was really the seed. And it, didn't, it, it actually didn't explode and expand the way I thought it would. Because there, it it was very very hard to get from stage one to stage two, season one to season two.
2: So, your sir, this is now sir. This is circa uh, nineteen ninety two. The MISL, or what was now known as the MSL, had basically folded. Um, you had two of those teams go to what was now known as the MPSL, which originally started as the AISA, a minor league. Um, but two of those MISL franchises uh, through various triangulations that you're, you're describing, Dallas and San Diego uh, come in. So from a soccer perspective, you've got two very strong franchises, arguably two of the, the more uh, dominant ones on the field, at least uh, during the latter half of the, uh, of the decade.
1: Yeah, I would say dominant on the field and dominant off the field. Dallas sidekicks at that time, at that time, I'm going to be very specific, ran a very, very well, uh, well-structured business. And they were extremely successful. And we were very, very pleased to have them join us. And the, it's interesting because Jerry Buss' offices were down south near San Diego. We actually entertained, uh, at that time, the owner, a guy named Oscar Ansera He was involved in the soccers. He became our owner with the San Diego Soccers. Came up to Jerry's office, and they bantered about the structure of the league. And it was great because you hit the nail on the head. It was the end of the MISL. And the Oscar walks into Jerry's office, and the three of us are sitting there. And Oscar says, how are you going to get players to play in in your league for a different financial structure, a much lower one, yada, yada, yada? And when they can play elsewhere. And Jerry says, where are they going to play? And well, you know, they were playing in the MISL. And Jerry turns to Oscar and says, what MISL? And that's where everything changed as far as the vision of where this thing needs to go financially and in a business manner. And Oscar bought in and did, did pretty well with the, uh, with, the, with the Continental Indoor Soccer League and the soccers down there. And Dallas was unbelievable for for. The entirety of the league, actually, as far as as far as their business structure. So yeah, we are very fortunate to get both the soccer's and the sidekicks under our under our umbrella.
2: Right. So from the, from the soccer uh, uh, community's perspective, right, that's immediate legitimacy because you've got arguably two of the best and most solid uh, indoor franchises uh, deciding to throw their lot uh, with the CISL versus uh, the still fall and winter season of uh, of whatever the NPSL was. But how do you? Um, How do you get them, as well as the, uh, I guess the other uh, uh, six, uh, uh, start? Sorry, one, two, three, yeah, five. Sorry, the other five franchises to uh, agree to this? uh, You sort of hinted at first of its kind single entity approach because they were well it took
1: it, it really took the negotiating out of out of out of the picture from both our standpoint and the league standpoint and the players' standpoint we set up a it was actually an amazing formula we actually set up a structure where we had a b c d players f players and we paid the players out of the league office so it took that negotiating out of the out of out of the way for the general managers and the owners of the team meeting with the players because it was a specific salary structure not to exceed not to exceed a salary the eight players made X amount of thousands of dollars per month B so on and so forth as it dwindled down to you know substitute players and then so we handled all the workmen's comp out of the office we handed all the player salaries out of the office we handed all the and, and everything and everything was handled out of the league office. We, again, we were structured very similar to that of the NBA. The league office owned all the rights to everything. And it just it made a lot of sense. And, again, instead of having a salary cap where everybody had to worry about how much they were going to pay players, we set the pay, pay, payroll structure. So we made life easy for them, Tim. And that's why the league was, in my vision, and most other people from, have a good business sense, uh, very successful for the first few years.
2: So you had uh, 10 charter franchises but went to, to market in 93, the first season that summer with seven. Dallas, San Diego, the Portland Pride, uh, Sacramento, Arizona, Los Angeles United, G playing where, I wonder, and uh, a team in Mexico. So uh, there are a couple of things I want to go deeper on, but this is certainly one of them. The Monterey La Raza, how do they come into the fold?
1: Very Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the first seven, because you're right. There were 10 charter franchises and seven kicked off the league. So the, the actually the, one of the most interesting pieces, the next three, but.
2: Well, um, you, we can start there and then get to Monterey. That's cool. I, whatever you want to do.
1: We can go to Monterey. Monterey. Uh, very interesting because he is a relative of the owner of the San Diego soccer. And he pleaded with us because he felt we needed 10 teams to let them be the seventh and and, and I, I mean again we're the first professional sports league to have a team in 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 Mexico and let me tell you it was extremely difficult um, from start to finish because it's, it's with the structure I shared with you about the player salaries and we also had radiuses you could only draft your players from 150 miles of your home city with the exception of maybe two and things like that. How was I going to police or the league going to police where these players were coming from that were playing for Monterey? And and if you look at what happened, they won two of the first three titles, you know, so I took a lot of heat for that, Tim. So Montere- Monterey came in because of their relationship with uh the ownership of, as I said, the ownership of, uh, of San Diego, and we allowed them in the league. And, you know, I was young, and, again, we were experimenting, and we were just excited to get going. So we let Monterey in the league, and that's how they came in.
2: Well, I mean, from a marketing perspective, that's that's obviously cool and a positive, and it's, it gives you a, a, one of a number of uh, additional storylines. But I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, sensing here that there was a little bit of um, – I don't know. Were they taking advantage of their uh, Mexican uh, domicile in terms of maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, league oversight or or, or perhaps different rules country wise or, or, or financially or whatever to kind of uh, maybe skirt some uh, some rules and stuff? Or is it just sort of luck and or uh, otherwise?
1: You know, I'll never have the answer to that one. All I know is that they were extremely talented. They were extremely friendly to me and uh, uh, gentlemanly to me. Again, when, you pull, when, when we had the rules, it's very easy to know where a player is coming from and where he, where he resides when we're talking Detroit or Los Angeles. We know, we know where they reside. We know where they live. We, we know they're within a certain radius. We know what their pay structure is, et cetera, even though we did pay the players out of the league even in Monterey. But I think it became a geographic problem of knowing where the players came from and if there was um additional salaries being paid or additional compensation being made extremely difficult and impossible to police so am i saying that i know that for 100 percent? no could it have just been coincidence how great they were they were very good and again they were always cordial to me and i'll never know the answer
2: well i i also get the sense too if i remember some of the games correctly that um uh, the, the, they played in kind of a, a cracker box of, a, of an arena called Monterey Tech, or at, at Monterey on the campus of Monterey Tech, which was I couldn't have been any more than three thousand seats, and and I gotta think it was, if I remember correctly, from what I remember reading and maybe seeing, that it was um, an intimidating place to play beyond just being in Mexico.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was an intimidating place to visit too for me. Um, yes, I would say that's accurate. Uh, I think it held somewhere between 3 and 3,500 after they crammed all the seats in. And the hardest thing for me personally is that they, um, they distributed cigarettes as you walked into the arena. And it's, and so you were in, like, this smoke-filled 3, 3,500-seat building, um, and it was an intimidating place. There's no question about it. I remember we had an incident... Down there, I think one of the teams ended up getting locked into their locker room, you know, when they had a game against Dallas. Something rings a bell back then. So, yeah, I'd say it was difficult, you know, but it's all part of the experience. Let me tell you, it was a crazy experience in, in for professional sports and in my life personally.
2: All right. So let's go back to those uh, three other uh, supposedly uh, charter franchises that, for whatever reasons, decided not to uh, be be with you in the 93 uh, season those were in pittsburgh las vegas and carolina i mean that would have brought you brought you to 10 plus this uh, inclusive now of, of monterey what, what were the stories that to the extent that you could remember as to why those three uh didn't uh come aboard i'm gonna guess carolina was an nba relationship las vegas i don't know and pittsburgh was probably more of the nhl side no
1: Right, so hang on, because now I'm not now I'm now you're testing the memory again. I my recollection was that it was Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Washington were the three that were the other three charter franchises. It doesn't really matter because they all ended up playing in the next season anyway. But there were three charter franchises that were part of the ten, right? And I, you know, I believe Carolina was one of them. You might be right. So the Carolina relationship was was uh, indirectly related to the NBA because a an NBA executive from way back, a gentleman by the name of Carl Shear, I want to say he worked for the Denver Nuggets at some time, he was the relationship. And that may have come from Jerry Colangelo. And, Jerry, and so Carl worked for a guy named Felix Sabates that owned uh, a race team in NASCAR, I want to say, I think it was the Kyle Petty team. So it was him. Felix Sabates owned the team and Carl was his right right arm. But we the 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 scenario that you're discussing is why didn't they play? The agreement made with the three, whichever three they might be, and you might be right probably. You probably are cuz you're younger than I am. So the three teams but made I, 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 an agreement. By, by
2: way, I am I'm never always right, for sure. I, I learn all the time. So uh, yeah, we'll put it and out there. There are some listeners out there who will absolutely know this right and set us both straight or wrong. So they, the, you
1: know. they can remind the guy that created the league. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad to know people know more than me about hey, this. I
2: am, you know, the, the history is not always a straight line. So don't worry. And about
1: I'm happy that they do, by the way, because I need my memory jog constantly in my life. So what happened was the agreement was there had to be a minimum of three or four teams east of the Mississippi. So Las Vegas was not one of them, I can tell you that. Because of the agreement that was made, there had to be three teams east of the Mississippi for them to start playing, or four, and I think there were only three at the time. And maybe that's where Washington came in or Detroit could be the fourth. And it gave me time to cultivate and get a fourth franchise. So then we'd go, then we'd have, actually, we probably knew we were going to have 11 at that time. And what happened was we didn't, since there wasn't four east of the Mississippi yet and I needed a fourth, we said we'd start with seven. And then in 1994, we'd go to 10, 11, 12, whatever we did. And then we went crazy, obviously. But the most interesting thing was there was four locked down, I want to say, eight months prior to the kickoff of the 94 season. And I get a call from Carolina, and it was either Carl or Felix, I'm not sure. And they say, we've changed our mind, we're not going to play. And, and it's like, why? Well, there's no good reason. We're focused on... NASCAR or whatever else we're doing here. And I said you can't do that. You made, a, you made a commitment to your other partners that you were gonna play and that's the only way we can launch the Eastern Division. And I'm sitting there pleading with them and finally I said to them, I will personally sign a contract with you right now to give you $100,000 if you choose not to play in the second year. So please start because otherwise the Eastern Division will collapse. And we'll never start the Eastern Division. And we signed an agreement. And sure enough, within 24 hours of the final game of their inaugural season in '94, they said, We're exercising our option for your $100,000. This is the kind of crap I had to deal with. And uh, it was actually very depressing because I knew throughout the course of the year and going down there, they did they did not put their best foot forward to be successful. They were going through the motions because of their commitment.
2: So that's How's that
1: for a story you never heard. Well,
2: no, that is interesting because I, I, I guess too, that part of their distraction was um, if I'm not mistaken, the Sabades and sheer had uh, also the, uh, the minor league Charlotte checkers, which I think you shared in their arena, obviously, which is the, I guess it's called the independence arena at the time, which was not the place where the Hornets were playing, which was sort of the brand new facility. Um, But no, that's interesting because as as most uh, CISL historians will know, uh, they turned in the, I think, what turned out to be the absolute last, excuse me, worst uh, regular season record in league history with a three win, 25 loss uh, record and barely 3,000 per game. So, you know, maybe good riddance, but it seems like, but what I hear from you is that there was a bit of a, it it sounded like they were sandbagging from the start. And that's, um, uh, welcome to the world of pro sports, young man.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was my welcome as a commissioner. That was probably the hardest thing I, I would say that was the hardest thing I had to deal with. I mean, I had a lot of hurdles to to get over, but that one was de- devastating because, again, it would have stopped. Again, I'm thinking it was Detroit and, and uh, Pittsburgh and Washington, I believe, were the three on the East waiting for a fourth. And uh, I had to do what I had to do. So so I did what I did, and then we continued to move forward in a very successful fashion. But it was really sad, especially with my relationship that I had built with Carl and I thought with Felix that they did what they did, because I was very close with their general manager, who was extremely active in the world of indoor soccer coming from the – I want to say he came from the St. Louis steamers, a guy named Mike Sanger. And uh, he, they brought him in, which was a positive move, but he was telling me everything that wasn't happening, that they weren't doing to make sure they were successful. And it was very difficult for me to watch.
2: Yeah. Give me a sense of 93 then, your first season. So uh, you're up and running. You've got seven, you got a seven-team league, maybe a little bit of an insight as to sort of what you were experiencing, how well it was going, how not well it was going, and then maybe sort of uh, sort of bridge into 94, because literally you go from seven to 14 teams in those two divisions that you're talking about. Um by all accounts, that seems like that is uh, unfettered uh, growth. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, you mentioned some of the other franchises like Pittsburgh and, and I guess Vegas started that year in ninety four, but then also all these other teams, San Jose and Houston, and, and then you move L.A. to Anaheim and all that kind of stuff. Give us a, a taste of sort of the whirlwind that was 93. Like when you kicked off, what, what were you thinking? Like, is this going to go? When, when did you know you had something going for you, positively?
0: I...
1: I- I knew opening night when when we awarded the first game to the to the l a Arizona owners to Buzz and Colangelo, and it was a spectacular event uh and I had a great feeling ever since right right out of the gate and I think the interest in the league with the strength and the ownership and the press we were getting I think that spread um where where we where we started losing focus to, on that move because the original concept of the league was the arena owner and the nba slash nhl owner and we we broke down there for the sake of securing more franchises which i should have never allowed to happen but you got to remember i wasn't a single guy running the ship i was taking input from all the other partners and the fact that at that time we had San Diego and uh, I think uh, Portland and Monterey that weren't NBA and NHL owners, they were the loudest voices and I let them get in my ear. And sorry, again, who
2: who were the loudest voices? Those who were not part of NHL and NBA?
1: Yes, I would say that, that was very factual because the other guys were obviously doing really well with their NBA teams. And we were a product for them, a product that they were treating very well, mind you, but they weren't involved in the decision-making process. And remember what I told you about Jerry Buss, which really happened from day one when, when, we, when we had the first press conference. Just to digress for a second, we had the first press conference, and again, as I shared, he was distracted because of the Magic Johnson situation. Um, I can remember the press conference where he and Colangelo, and I want to say Jim Thomas, were sitting on the dais and the media turns to Jerry Buss and says, who's going to run your franchise? And I don't think he had given it a lot of thought at the time because of his understandable distraction. And he looks around the room, and he sees Jeannie, and he says, my daughter's going to run it. And I think Jeannie looked like, I guess I'm going to run this thing. And she didn't really I I don't know how much knowledge she had at that time that that was going to be assigned to her. So, again... He was not focused. Jerry Colangelo was focused on running a good franchise. He turned it over to Brian Colangelo, who did a great job. Jim Thomas was very active. But again, I want to say that the non-NBA and NHL owners were the most—they were the most excited because this is new. This is their new toy, and they became very vocal. And again, I probably uh, let them make more more of the decisions than I should have.
2: So it's a case of, of squeaky wheels getting getting the oil, but it's also – it's also too – I guess it's probably also to be – to it's understandable because those non-NBA or NHL related uh, operations, right, had more – I don't want to say invested, but more, more to lose, if you will, more at stake because this was only or they're generally their only sort of thing. They didn't have the resources to share across one or more franchises or – across different sports or an arena and that kind of stuff, right? So maybe that had something to do with it. Or maybe some of it was the soccer, like Dallas, for example, who you know came with a, 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 a soccer pedigree, perhaps, and, and maybe San Diego, too, that kind of, I don't know, sought that as first, and they already knew how to run their franchises. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, this is the wisdom of Tim talking again. So you're, you're right on. So these guys come in with soccer, soccer pedigree. And a soccer passion, definitely Monterey, definitely San Diego, definitely Dallas, though there was the crossover, but they had a sole separate staff for soccer. And they didn't, they, they, with the exception of Dallas, didn't have the ancillary resources. Not They didn't have the staff in place, their basketball or hockey staff in place. They had to hire whole brand-new staff, as well as the fact that they had They didn't have access to the ancillary revenue streams. They didn't get parking revenues. They didn't get signage revenues. They didn't get, you know, the concessions revenues, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, they had a lot more at risk than the NBA and NHL franchise. The NHL and NBA franchise, let's be – they loved the product, and I I will say that until I die. They loved, loved, loved the product. They didn't need to make a million dollars. What they did need to do was – give their employees something else to do and something to keep them busy and it'd be able to increase their ad revenue. So, for example, if Anheuser-Busch was one of their sponsors, now they could tell them there were 14 more dates in their buildings and they could increase their revenue streams, you know, 5%, 10%. So, it was very easy for them to run a successful franchise. And if we would have followed that formula from start to finish, we'd be having a different conversation today.
2: How was the quality of play? Uh, were you enthused by the crowds? Uh, how was marketing? I mean, what was the you know uh, how did how did you you know quote unquote product like uh, how did how did people feel and how did you in particular feel about uh, you know the the game and the experience at the game and that kind of stuff? Do you think you you were convincing people that this was worth a uh, an indoor two hours if you will during the hot summer months?
1: I think the product spoke for itself. I think the entertainment value that we we portrayed. Some of these teams were over the top unbelievable. I can remember, um, you know, we're now kind of talking about year two. I remember when Detroit announced their franchise, Grant Hill, put on a, put on a Detroit, I want to say, help me out. This, I think they were the Neon then. Is that right, Tim?
2: And they started as the Neon, which I want to get into, is like how that uh, sponsorship name overriding uh, uh, occurs.
1: So, so the outcomes in their introductions... Uh, Grant Hill comes out in a Detroit neon uniform. That added instant credibility right there. So here they are, you know, opening night, their first game ever, and Grant Hill's running out in a knee. Yeah, people did an unbelievable job on marketing and promoting their franchise, those that had the wherewithal. Uh, some of the teams that coming down the road that we'll talk about didn't utilize all their opportunity that they should have. To, to execute you know, on the marketing front. The quality of play never came into question from start to finish. It never was questioned by anybody in the soccer world to me. Um, I think at that time, we were the premier league and people, the players, the athletes, they wanted to play in the league because of who the ownership group was. Not necessarily how much money they were gonna make or, or should they go overseas. I think we were able to attract a very, for what we were able to give them financially, God bless them. Um, at the outset of the league, I think we had a, a very good quality product. Again, it was never questioned, ever, ever, and it was always on on display via television or in, in arena.
2: How, how does a how does a, a a naming sponsorship like the Neon, which uh, was at the time was a uh, it's a subcompact. Vehicle from Chrysler. How, how does that uh, get into the team name? And, and did you sort of worry about sort of uh, compromising, if you will, uh, the qu- credibility or the uh, integrity, if you will, perhaps of the play by, if you will, allowing the Detroit team to kind of go full circle into uh, a, a total naming of the team for the product?
1: You know, there was a lot of thought put into that decision, whether or not we were going to allow it or not. Uh, The reality was the dollars made sense. It was a dollar and cents issue. And the fact that it was the neon, and neon was a real hot product at that time, forget the car. I'm talking the neon colors and the lights and the lasers that we portrayed and all that, that the name would have been great even if there wasn't a, uh, it wasn't being named after a car that we all knew. And the average fan didn't necessarily relate the fact that it was a car or it was just a cool name. Um, and I think that was the decision why why we went forward. And again, they, they were Detroit because of that. Um, maybe they were in the number one or two spot of teams that were financially successful in the CISL right out of the gate. Right out of the gate.
2: Yeah, and, and led the league in attendance many, many times as well, too, just despite being relatively morbid on the field.
1: They were great. The, the Detroit... Uh, ownership, the piston ownership, uh, Bill Davidson and Tom Wilson, um, Ron Campbell—they—they they were the brass there. They—they they always took it seriously. They always participated, and they were—they were extremely, extremely a quality run franchise. It always felt like a first class event going into that building at at the Palace of Auburn Hills, which I was very depressed to see imploded. Uh, the last month
2: or so. Yeah, just a couple of weeks back, the uh, the palace. Matter of fact, our uh, our, our pal Ken Tomash, uh, who was the uh, at the time back in the day, uh, the radio announcer, I think, and occasionally TV announcer for the uh, Indianapolis uh, then Indiana Twisters during the, in the CISL. He uh, he was just tweeting uh, some laments of his own, and and it sort of led to a little uh, online discussion about which uh, arenas might still be around uh, from the old CISL. I I ventured that the key arena in Seattle with a big asterisk next to it, of course, because that's really been kind of drilled down to its studs and kind of rebuilt from the inside. But I don't think there are many left, if any, that perhaps Jose Arena for sure and the San Diego Sports Arena, which is renamed, And but, you know, not many others, right?
1: Well, that's a, you know, that's a sad subject you're bringing up. Does that mean I'm getting, I'm getting older?
2: I think we both are. Uh, I don't think that's a sad subject at all. It just is. Uh, but, you know, we're still alive. We're above ground. That's a good thing. Um, let me ask
1: so they haven't imploded
2: me yet. All right. Well, uh, let me ask you then, just, just generally, we kind of jump around here, but uh, of all the teams that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of came in and went uh, during this, uh, during this large the 1990s in the CISL, any other franchises that we haven't talked about or situations that uh, you either remember glowingly or uh, uh, wistfully or worse uh, during your uh, wild ride in the uh, with the CISL? So we're
1: not talking about the. And we're talking about the
2: no, middle. Thing. I'm talking about during the years. I mean, you you in you know, 94. We're talking about 14 teams. The next year you had 15 teams and three divisions. I mean, you know, I you had a lot of franchises, well, franchises or, or owned, owned op- slash operated uh, uh, brands out there. Are, are there any situations that you um, uh, just uh, remember uh, fondly or not so uh, from that list of, uh, of teams, about uh, almost 20 now, out, 20 teams or so at the, the course yeah. of the year?
1: Yeah, I, I yeah I, we could go through them one at a time, but I think the one that stands out the most is that the LA United because of my friends, the Bus family. That was extremely difficult for me, but I knew why, um, and I knew why it wasn't going to work and it wasn't working because of again because Jerry Bus was distracted at the time and the fact that I had to move that franchise from the Forum at the time. I want to say to Anaheim to play in the pond, that was tough for me. Because he he was my he was really my, you know, my support when I started this effort back when the seed was planted in eighty nine. And to have him not be part of me and not be part of the Continental Indoor Soccer League was tough. And I think that took a hit on everybody because everybody said like what happened to Jerry, what happened to Jerry, you know, Dr. Bus Jerry. And that that was probably the hardest for me. If you're asking what the hardest one, the one that sticks out the most, that was it for sure.
2: Well, uh, that, that's understandable, and there are a lot of emotional and/or just uh, uh, you know uh, personal sort of reasons around that. But how does Anaheim then come into play? Because the Splash did quite well for themselves uh, after sort of that that switch, right? It actually almost became sort of a uh, a better situation for that team, no?
1: Yes, a guy named Brad Maine and Tim Ryan. They led the charge in Anaheim. They worked for a company called Ogden. And Ogden was uh, the owners of, uh, I want to say they owned and managed the pond at the time. And they did a a heck of a job. And they were were at a break-even point or very close to that. And something happened within the Ogden Corporation. And they asked them to find an owner. And... That was, a, that was a rough blow, too, because the owner they brought in did not have the financial wherewithal to operate the franchise. And they, they will tell you to this day that if they would have kept it one more season, they would have been profitable. And that was, that was tough. So you're right. They came out of the gate, 95, 96, gangbusters and did great. So it wasn't until the transition, the, I think 94, 95, it wasn't until 96. That They brought in a, an owner that didn't have the like i said the wherewithal to run the franchise, and we did not do our good best job at vetting that ownership coming in
2: where where were the, where, where else would you felt the, the, the strongest uh, situations were uh, in the league where were the ones that you could sort of continue to rely on and that, that you saw were either stable or getting to that point or getting to close to break even were there other franchises that you felt were almost sort of model in terms of um, you know how you'd like to see the rest of the league look?
1: I thought the Warthogs in Washington did a great job under Aid, aid Poland. I thought they had one of the most clever marketing efforts. People there knew who they were. They were running uh, a couple of games a year during the day and inviting all the summer and soccer camps to the games. They they were extre- they did extremely well. One of the one of the toughest ones was San Jose the Grizzlies. They were a co-owned by the San Jose Sharks. And the problem is they put, <laughs> this is a combination of the two pedigrees you're talking about. So I had the San Jose Sharks being partners with a, a guy named Milan Mandaric, who was very involved in the European soccer world.
2: Oh, sure. And also, also well-known in the Bay Area outdoor soccer. Uh, he was arguably the godfather of, of the Bay Area's outdoor exploits over the years in this, from, from this, way back in the 60s.
1: Right. So what you ha- happened there was you had the the, the sense of the Sharks, the gr- a great, well-run franchise in the NHL. You had them commingled with the pedigree of soccer, and they took a back seat, unfortunately, they being the Sharks, to Milan and let him run the franchise, and it, that was a recipe for disaster. So that one was difficult. Now get back to a, probably one of the most positive ones, and – which has a very sad ending is the Dallas Sidekicks. They were, they were gangbusters from day one, as I shared earlier. They ran a first class franchise, first class organization. And again, uh, things didn't go south until, uh, Don Carter decided to sell the team to, uh, the owners of the Minyard, Minyard Market World. So God only knows why he gave it up. So <laughs> he never asked me my opinion. They just moved it over to this guy and let him
2: run it. Yeah, well, still, at least uh, having a, a national footprint, right, with Eastern and Central and and, and Western uh, divisions and all that. How about television and all of this? Uh, what was your approach to that and or how readily was, uh, uh, I guess, cable especially? Uh, but I'm sure you were trying to figure out something more broadcast oriented or more solid and stable on that front, or did you not care or the arena, the ownerships not really care because this was really arena-filling first?
0: Oh, no,
1: we cared. We cared from a revenue standpoint, for sure, because we were actually utilizing at one time the in-house marketing staff of the Pistons to help us on a national sales level. Um, we had, you know, this is, this is when, you know, some of your listeners will shake their head. You know, the, the foundation of the league, the things that we had in place, in the middle of the league in the mid-90s, but I want to say 95 probably, we had a three-year deal with Fox Sports Television for a primetime broadcast uh, doing a game of the week. So, yeah, we did care, and we had an unbelievable, unbelievable relationship where Fox bought our product. And at the same time, playing off of what, what I just shared with you and the relationship that the Pistons had, we had a three-year million-dollar deal with General Motors that was on the table as well. So no, for, uh, national television was a big deal for us and it was extremely successful. Now on a local level, moving into year three where we had the Seattle Supersonics, where we had the Seattle Sonics ownership with the Ackerleys, Ackerleys, another quality family. Uh, for some reason they chose not to, dis- they owned television time because of Ackerleys Communications, that's what they did. And for some reason, they never utilized the opportunity via television. So that would be an example that you shared of somebody that just wanted product in their building and utilized their staff. So I scratch my head to this day of why it wasn't they didn't utilize their uh, television resources more.
2: Yeah. And with the Sea Dogs was a, was a great, not only name franchise, but the logo was uh, fantastic. Sort of the, uh, it's, it's one of the, <laughs> they, <best> were <laughs> they were fun. Um, they uh, were. Let me, before we sort of get maybe into sort of the, the Deumont and the sort of the ultimate demise and sort of what happens to the league circa 97 or so just after that season, uh, just a complete sidebar question. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised I didn't ask it earlier, but uh, you know, what of roller hockey international in the midst of all this and, and, uh, and, and Jeannie bus, right. Uh, part of the bus uh, uh, umbrella, a uh, uh, family, right. Is, uh, Uh, Part of that, right? I think she was a big enthusiast for uh, this uh, now Dennis Murphy (laughs) 3.0 new league uh, with, if you will, indoor hockey also uh, geared towards uh, the summer and maybe arguably competitively against the CISL for the attention of various arena owners to, quote unquote, fill dates during the summer. Was there any uh, knowledge or relationship or... Uh, co-conspiracy to uh, to help each other, or was it uh, competitive and or did you not care or worry about it?
1: I would say the latter. I don't think we cared or worried about it. We didn't find them um, a threat for us. Um, the, let's go back to the MISL discussion. The MISL's product was, was superior to many sports in this country. And so we didn't have to go sell a new sport. Roller hockey had to go sell a new sport. Um, indoor soccer was already a proven commodity, and it was just a natural carryover. And uh, as I shared earlier, I, it's the business model that really took the hit. Jeannie, Jeannie had her, you know, Jeannie had fun with roller hockey. She had a great time there. And, again, that was one of the distractions within the building for us, you know, because remember I said she was running both. The roller hockey and and the CISL and at the same time, you know, Dr. Bus had kind of checked out on me because of his personal stuff going on. So I, I it, we really it never really came into play. I'd say arena football came into play a little more at the outset of arena football. They actually turned to us and and asked us for guidance. Um, so that was more of a, a a working partnership, I would say, than. Indoor soccer and
0: roller hockey.
2: That's interesting, and uh, I think it's also part and maybe part of the, the the sort of last sort of set of questions we get to is sort of as the the, the uh, demise here. Um, this is also, I think, uh, instructive too, because this is also when the uh, uh, CISL, uh, uh, you know, uh, went its way after the nineteen ninety seven season. It was also the uh, prelude to the WNBA, right? Which is interesting because that too uh, became a summer summer only. Uh, proposition, And I got to think that that also became uh, a new shiny object for at least the NBA owners, uh, either those not part of the CISL or perhaps with a wandering eye and maybe uh, some, I don't know, uh, shall we say pressure from the NBA league office to perhaps swap it out or maybe double down on women's basketball instead of a CISL. Now I'm really throwing stuff your way that that I, neither I or you expected, but I'm just wondering as I think about it.
0: Well,
1: let, let, let me let's digress for a moment because, and I want you to hold that thought because that's extremely important. That was a that was an extremely difficult time for the CISL and the NBA owners and the continuance of the Continental Indoor Soccer League. So you're right on number one, and we should get into that because there's actually a funny story that goes along with that. But prior to that. Going back to the politics of soccer in the United States, um, Alan Rothenberg, as you, we were a very powerful player at the time. The Continental Indoor Soccer League were a powerful player in the United States Soccer Federation because of our ownership and because of the early success of the league. However, FIFA came to the United States Soccer Federation with Alan Rothenberg as president and said, if you bring an outdoor soccer league, professional outdoor soccer league to the United States we will grant you the world cup so let me tell you from that moment forward everything else on Alan rothenberg's plate took a, took not only a back seat but wasn't even allowed in the car so he did everything he can could um, for himself personally as well as the you know, getting the uh, Major League Soccer started, MLS, as well as getting the World Cup here, everything else was treated like the ugly stepchild. And there was zero cooperation between the United States Soccer Federation and the Continental Indoor Soccer League, which was also a thorn in our side. And to the point where we, I advocated of just separating ties And then you had the soccer pedigree saying, oh, how can we not do that? How can we not be part of FIFA? How can we not do the proper contractual negotiations with the players and have them sign their player registration cards? It was bizarre how these people cowtailed and bowed to the powers of FIFA and the United States Soccer Federation and Allen Rothenberg. Um, you know, so Alan Rothenberg had a had a had, you know you, you don't need to talk to me about this, but he had a lot of personal interest in the in Major League Soccer, and he was going to do everything in his power to make sure it went forward.
2: So, in other words, that sounds like it was the almost at the outset of the CISL, it was you were being undermined from the soccer powers that be, which probably added to some shakiness, or perhaps created and or ultimately shook it. By the, uh, by the decade's end, as M- M- MLS got going in 96.
1: Yes, I, that's, did I be, do I believe that it had to occur and lead to a demise? No, I don't, think, I don't think it had to, but definitely undermined it. And it was probably year two into it that I started to feel that, that we had zero cooperation and people were trying to undermine and make sure we weren't successful. They did nothing to make us. They did nothing to help make us successful. They were on a mission, and there was no question about that they were on a mission. Yeah, it, it was a difficult task. Again, that all being said, you're talking about a league that had 15 teams, the Continental Indoor Soccer League, three-year deal with Fox Sports, a three-year deal with General Motors. Um, that, that in itself spoke for itself, and there's no reason — nothing I've told you to, yet could lead to our demise. We were we were a we were a pretty powerful train at the at that moment.
2: Well, I, would, and I then, would I would imagine too that the NHL and NBA and or arena owners probably were a little perplexed and or miffed by uh this soccer politics thing too,
0: right?
1: Um as much as I let as much as I shared with them, <laughs> yes. I did not bring them into this fold because it had nothing to do with the success their success on the field. Um, they knew very little unless it was one of the pedigrees that you talk about the soccer pedigrees those were the guys that asked a lot of questions the nBA n h l guys could care less. They were more like, "Who are these people and, <laughs> and 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 get them out of our way you know and they just left it up to me so so Anyway, to go back to you, if you want to go, we can go to that NBA piece because that's a crazy story when the when the WNBA started.
2: All right. Well, let, let's do that. So let, let's let, let's let's uh, reframe the uh, the timeline here as we kind of sort of round third base here to again mix a metaphor, which I, I'm I'm actually almost a near professional in doing. Yes, uh, thank you very much. But uh, I, 1996, right? Uh, you are, you know, you're um, you had a handful of franchises that sort of folded. You're coming off of. Uh, a 95 season with uh, what was it? I guess 15 teams uh, 96. You're, I wouldn't say down all that much, but you're at uh, 11, 11 teams, uh, six plus five. Yes, it's 11 teams. Uh, and then going into 97, uh, I think even you were up to 10, uh, you had 10 teams still solid, still, you know, Eastern and Western divisions and stuff. But 96 obviously is the first year of major league soccer uh, to great fanfare. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're sort of now uh, at, uh, uh, I guess, a point where, at least on the soccer front, uh, there is, for lack of a better word, some certain distraction, some of which you're hinting at. Um, but what else is going on that kind of uh, maybe sort of leads to what ultimately happens after the 97 season? I mean, some is there stuff going on behind the scenes that we that we uh, mere laymen don't know about uh, that, that are sort of going on. I, I hinted at the NBA and the potential of the women's game, but that wasn't front and center in 96, right?
1: I believe it was at that time.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: I believe it was front and center at the time. And, and it, in fact, I believe it had a transition. So if you take a look at Colangelo's franchise, this is when things started going a little odd. So I had the Pistons... The Pistons, the Wizards, the Kings, trying to remember who was still involved from an NBA level near the end, because again, these guys turn over their franchises because like a car, you know, like, I think I'm going to make some money and then go focus on something else. So Colangelo actually sold his team to an outside group. So now I don't have Jerry Colangelo anymore. So Colangelo has the team playing inside of his building,
2: I think you had sacramento too still right
1: yeah sacramento's still there um with jim thomas he was there the whole he was there the distance for me and uh so so i so i lost i lost colangelo at that time and i think it's it's very much related to what happened with the wnba so again going back to history johnny buss and i are dear friends johnny Bus. Reports back to me, if you if you know the history of the Sparks, the L.A. Sparks and the WNBA, Johnny Bus started them and ran them. So he attends the first WNBA Board of Governors meeting. He comes back, thank God we didn't have social media back then. He comes back and reports to me. David Stern, NBA commissioner, announces to the group at the outset of the meeting, Ron Weinstein's no longer our friend. You know, he says it half kiddingly. And he says, we, we are going to play in the summer. We need our buildings. We need our dates. We need our focus. So he basically did exactly what you just said and distract took away the attention to the CISL and put it on the WNBA and the WNBA. If you talk to many of the owners, it was a a very politically correct move at the time And that's why the pressure and the for you know for them to participate and purchase uh, WNBA teams. So between you know what what they were doing with Major League Soccer and now here comes the WNBA, the task became more difficult.
2: Well, okay, so uh, that's interesting, I, and especially interesting because I just read recently that uh, Donald uh, Donald David Stern is uh, posthumously going to be inducted into the uh, Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, perhaps rightly so, for sure, uh, and clearly, obviously, the you know uh, one of the, if not the, driving force for uh, that league uh, to to come about. Um, but let me ask you this: uh, Do you think that you were kind of uh, laying some of the groundwork and or the blueprint for the viability of playing during the summer with your sizzle product?
1: Not only did we lay the viability for summer product, we laid the viability for the structure of the WNBA. So they became a single entity. So from a business standpoint and, you know, and a playing standpoint, you know, maybe I should have patented some of these things or trademarked them. So, you know, that's exactly what transpired. Yes. A hundred percent. We laid the groundwork for the summer season for sport, for indoor activity as far as that's concerned.
2: And and from what you can remember, I, it sounds like it was beyond arm twisting, right? I mean, if, if you're an NBA owner and or arena owner with an NBA franchise, how do you say no to the quote unquote Don, if you will? <laughs> right? I mean, I, a different. I mean, that's that's not a comment about the viability or or the uh, the appropriateness of a women's league. I'm mean, arguably way overdue and, and you know if years beyond. Yeah, you know, without uh, having a pro league for for women, I, that's a whole you know uh, that's that's another topic. But um, but it, it, let's put it this way. I, I I would find it extremely difficult for any NBA owner to not say yes uh, to that, and that's got to make your life uh, whatever how many franchises were NBA directly related. Uh, almost uh, unsurvivable.
1: Right. I think you're 100% correct there as well. Uh, You know, there was a lot of arm twisting and a lot of strong arming. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure put on the NBA owners to purchase WNBA teams, without question. But again, when I say there's pressure, they also needed product in their building. and, And the formula they had in place, thanks to the CISL, etc. You know, they they had a pretty locked down success story right there. And 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 that's why the WNBA still exists today. And you've noticed some of the WNBA owners that were NBA owners have turned it over to private ownership, the same thing that happened in the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Only we didn't have the power of the NBA behind us to this day like they still do.
2: So the WNBA starts in 97, which maybe not so coincidentally becomes your last season, how do you soldier on? How do you uh, hold on? How do you keep, you know, how do you keep a brave face? And how do you, I mean, do you know it's kind of the beginning of the end or are you still feeling pretty confident knowing that perhaps your soccer centric owners and maybe the NHL related owners and frankly, others could keep this going?
1: Well, that's interesting because, you know, we we incorporated, I want to say in 1990, the Continental Indoor Soccer League. And when you start a league from inception and are the founder and commissioner of the league, I, I to be frank, I was extremely, I won't say I was burnt out because that's not the right word. I was worn out. And I think it was a combination of my drive and a combination of things like we'll talk about in a moment that have, were happening behind the scenes that made it easier for it to just to go away and for it to just vanish. Because we I, again, we were in the middle of a three-year contract with television advertising that we should never have walked away from. Um, but there was a lot of jockeying behind the scenes. Um, I still had very strong involvement as I shared with the, from the Pistons and the warthogs. I mean, the uh, the the wizards and the kings. Um, so, I, I, if I remember correctly, we had three very strong NBA and NHL and NBA owners at that time. And I should have capitalized on their involvement more than I did. Um, so it was. It. I think I was tired, Tim. I think I was tired. To be frank.
2: And and how about the, the soccer-centric franchises? Because I think the what, what transpired after the folding of the league at the end of the season of 97 was uh, instructive, too, because there were a number of franchises that did indeed want to soldier on indoors in the summer uh, after the ashes of the collapse of the CISL.
1: Well, that, that's a misnomer right there. That's not what happened. Okay. So there was already a coup taking place behind the scenes, in 96, I want to say.
2: Okay, give us some some insight because I'm not sure that's (laughs) well-known.
1: I'm not sure I want to tell anybody. (laughs) Um, Let me put it this way. I was getting pressure about two years before the end of the league to make some changes. So George Ragdy, for example, um, who was one of, as you heard at the outset, was one of the people that helped me start the league. I was getting pressure to move him aside because he didn't have a lot of sports-related knowledge and soccer knowledge. He 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 learned on the fly. He came in from a whole different... Te- he came in from the tech world, as I shared, in the money world. And uh, so th- they pressured me to move him aside. They brought in a guy you're familiar with, I believe, by the name of Roy Turner. Um, I think Absolutely. His...
2: Former guest on this
0: little show.
1: Right. So they brought him in. They had me hire him. I don't know to do what. I'll You know, we were getting involved in a marketing campaign with Hewlett Packard, and I think the attorney, Grigsby said to him, yeah, we're working on a program, something with Hewlett Packard, and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the gentleman. So did you get that? I hope you got that, Tim. So my point is I'm getting pressure from some of these soccer franchises. I believe it was Dallas that had that happen. And so they had me put Roy Turner in the front office of the CISL. And then there was a, uh, uh, like a, an underling under George at the time, a guy named uh, Don Shapiro. And they got into his ear as well. So now I have, now they're infiltrating the league with their own personnel and their own people that behind the scenes are relaying information to some of our renegade franchises they evidently thought they could do it better on their own. And I believe that started in somewhere in, somewhere in 96.
2: And, uh, and, and these are pretty, pretty ugly, actually. These were, these were largely soccer centric or soccer exceptionalists, so to speak, uh, franchise, uh, things versus NBA or NHL related, uh, folks.
1: Yeah, it was none of my NBA and NHL people. It was my soccer people. And coincidentally with the exception of, With the exception of the sidekicks, every one of them had financial issues with the CISL. When I say financial issues, they owed the league money. And so these franchises that you share that went and branched off on their own to try to start their own league at the demise were already in the works. And again, were in the rears. Two of them were in the rears to the league. And one of them, because the books were open to me, were uh, I want to say three times over the salary cap. So, <laughs> so you know these 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 the renegades or the you know the pedigree soccer pedigree people were making up their own set of rules. And I believe at the time, and I don't think it became very clear to me that Gordon Jago from the Dallas Sidekicks wanted to take the lead and wanted to be president or commissioner or whatever he wanted to be of his own league. And he was uh, leading the
2: charge. Well, it almost sounds like you're, you're uh, in some respects, a, a victim of the greater schism, I guess, uh, that was set in motion with the relaunch of a professional outdoor league uh, in the U.S. and MLS. Um, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, I don't know, it just, it seems it's very interesting you have a number of things sort of uh, so, uh, you know, uh, simultaneously triangulating here—the WNBA uh, thing on the NBA side, the, uh, the the launch of an outdoor league, and taking arguably players and the FIFA thing and the soccer politics—I uh, don't know. It seems like you're you're balancing uh, a, a number of different plates while the uh, while the floor is kind of shaking.
1: Yeah, and and the floor is the most important part because again you know the old adage you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater you know these people that wanted to continue playing if in fact they were going to play on a legitimate level these people that wanted to continue playing should have you know re- done what they needed to do and not thrown the entire thing out and tried to reinvent the wheel because again they had they had a strong ownership base they had a television contract in place and they had an advertising contract in place and the fact that it speaks for itself. Without going into a lot of detail, they should have continued the Continental Indoor Soccer League, restructured maybe the front office with input from everyone, and not tried to – again, to answer your question, it was already in the works. They were already starting. They, they didn't wait till the Ashes. Were. They, they, they created the Ashes. There's no question in my mind, Tim, that the league would not have – fold it if it wasn't for their behind-the-scenes actions,
2: 100%. I guess that sort of brings up the question, then, with the folding of the CISL and and uh, the pieces that sort of, I guess, uh, directly and indirectly sort of came thereafter, whether it's the Premier Soccer Alliance or whatever was left of the MPSL or a reboot of the MISL, you know, the, the current MASL. I, it just seems that in my mind, and maybe yours too, that the CISL was probably maybe the last best great, well-played, competitive indoor soccer loop in this country. Um, and I just wonder why, like why? I mean, you, we, we spent, now it's our second episode, circling a lot around a business model, right? The central ownership, the Keeping costs in control, the uh, the benefits of having economic uh, uh, sharing of costs with either arenas or other leagues and their management's, uh, you know, the summer months thing, right, which is tends to be more dead for indoor arena operators and and the filling of product. Frankly, now even with with television and digital video offerings, just uh you know completely out there and and. We've seen in this pandemic, you know, uh, live sports matters to a lot of people, not only industrially in, in the television and media worlds, but also for fans who are craving live uh, stuff that distracts them from, you know, uh, the, the you know, the revisits of the same library on Netflix again. Why do you think, there's a question in here somewhere. Why do you think... Uh, in, I got
1: the question. Okay. Or,
2: or when do you think indoor soccer, uh, if you will comes back at that sort of top-tier kind of excitement? Or is that just is that just gone? Is that M-I-S-L and C-I-S-L, is that just lightning in a bottle that was there at the at, at the right time in the right place and is just really never going to come back again?
1: Well, let me put it this way. Johnny Buss and I actually had this conversation a week ago because we still love the product. If Jerry Buss was still alive, uh i'd have a, a, a much more positive thought about it yes it continuing and to answer the question that was in, embedded in your commentary um until until the soccer pedigree people um and which is again where this i think it was the wisl and the psl whatever they tried to create until they put to the, check their egos at the door and their soccer passion at the door, and run it more as a business. Uh, it's going to continue to fail, and it it was it was a sad ending. And for me, it was a little easier because um, my my girlfriend from high school and college came back into my life 29 years later, and I can remember in my our last meeting with in Sacramento with Jim Thomas and Detroit and. I think every, there was, the NBA guys were there. I got a call to come meet her in Seattle, and I didn't even care about the league anymore. It was like, I'm out of here. And I checked out and got on a plane and flew up to Seattle. So. But, again, if they, put, if they need to check their egos at the door and work, run this as a business, um, again, for them to walk away what they walked away from, I'm talking about the people that were still involved. It wasn't the Detroits or the Washingtons. Um, um, who else was there? And the Seattles that shut the door on this league, they're the ones that didn't continue playing because they didn't want to have partners like this, like the pedigree you talk about. It, it again, it should have never ended. It should have continued, and it should have continued in a very successful manner. Because you said we're, you, and I and I appreciate what you said, and I, I truly believe that. And I think more than a soccer competitive standpoint, Tim, the competitive game on the field that was great at the time it ended, and sure, it was the best indoor soccer league that existed at that time and probably we may ever see again um i think think the reality is like i said the business structure of it was more powerful than what was happening on the field and the fact that we were as success, successful as we were after three years of inception if you put that against any other pro sports league in the world that's ever been created where we were in year three is eons beyond any other professional sports league in this country after year three. And the fact, again, the fact that some of these people that let their egos get in the way, did take it down. You know, that was their choice. You know, did I cry? Did I cry over it? No, <laughs> but did it have to end? No, it should, it should be, it should exist today, Tim. And the game itself should exist today.
2: See, I think that's an interesting statement because, uh, uh, pandemic notwithstanding right there seems to be uh almost a uh, a new strain if you will of sports entrepreneurialism over the last couple of years right and uh it's not necessarily uh you know shall we call it traditional city domiciled franchises and and travel and and that kind of approach obviously central ownership is is really taken hold as as at least a starting model but what we've seen a lot of especially for newer sports or sports that have had checkered histories in uh, a top tier sort of pro league, um, maybe with the exception of major league rugby, you have sort of this, um, I guess, call it a touring model. Right. So like Premier League lacrosse, uh, right, where you 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 have uh, or the big three uh, where you have teams either, you know, uh, you know, nominally representing cities or regions, or frankly, I think worse, you know, nonsensical names that don't mean anything. Um, but, but they literally take the show on the road, and it becomes sort of a weekend thing where you know it's going to be in these 12 cities over the course of a year, and it's still run like a real competition, but it more of in a kind of, a, I don't know, predictable festival kind of thing versus the need to fill arena dates, and, and arguably, too, not needing necessarily gigantic uh, arenas, but as long as there's some level of cable and or streaming television involved, the facilities can be relatively small and intimate uh, in the process. So in that, I ask then, number one, well, number just generally, do you think, quote unquote, indoor soccer could perhaps uh, tweak a little bit in terms of how it goes to market, knowing some of those things, and maybe truly with the business model first Come back into life at a, at a top level tier. I, you know, I. There are plenty of people out there. Some of them nostalgists, but some of them also too just fans of the game because it's a fun, exciting, uh, skill based, uh, you know, uh, and fun to watch version of the sport. I I don't think it has to be instead of outdoor like it was sort of pitched in the '80s. I think it's actually very complementary if you think about it.
1: Yeah, or it could evolve as, as its own product, and that's something that Jerry Buss and I talked about at the outset, even during the MISL days, why do we even use the word soccer in our name? It should have its own name, um, because those those people that are passionate about the outdoor game, they look at it as a bastardization of their game, and those that don't like soccer hear the word soccer and say, we aren't coming indoors to see a game that you're making a mockery of." So. Yes, do I believe it could come back on a, on, a, on a level? Does it have to be a road show? No, I believe. The way the league, I'm going to go to it again. We only played 14 home games. It was, uh, I want to say we were 28-game schedule. I believe. 14 events. That's all you're selling during the summer months of June, July, and August. That's not a lot. And it's enough to pay the players. It's enough to get a good television contract. It's enough to and work with your advertisers and keep your ushers and your ticket takers and your concessionaires and your parking people all employed. Yeah, I believe it's very viable, but I think what's happened over the years since the end of the CISL, people have watered it down. And and that's the problem. How do you how do you resurrect it unless you have major owners behind it and go back to your the the great example is is Major League Soccer. Look what they did. I mean, that was brilliant. Except for the fact they took my best employee ever in my history, Dan Quinterman, away from me in 1996 or something. And uh, the, another good move by Alan Rothenberg. A brilliant move by by the way taking him. But they have a, they had an unbelievable ownership base with Lamar Hunt, with Ann Schutz, with. Uh, I don't, you know, I could go on and on and on. They had a strong base of ownership, not that were passionate about soccer. These guys were passionate about business and their arenas and their buildings and whatever else they had, and they, they went in it with both feet. If somebody did that today with indoor soccer and put a lot of money behind it, yes, I, I do believe it has its place, and I do believe it can be an extremely successful entity. uh, It's too good of a product. It's too good of a game.
2: All right. We uh, hereby give the uh, official friend of the show title uh, to our pal Ronnie Weinstein for uh, his second tremendous conversational appearance on this little show, uh, the CISL. Uh, a, a topic that continues to fascinate uh, and uh, we uh, could not have found a better person to talk about than the founder and the, uh, the, uh, the the chief bottle washer and uh, cook and, uh, and everything around that league uh, during the 1990s and uh, we thank Ronnie for taking time to go back down memory lane uh, lots of great CISL uh, footage uh, to be found on YouTube, uh, check it out uh, our pal Patrick McCarthy's got a couple of games up there uh, but uh, also Ken Tomash our uh, previous guest from a number of years ago just search up that episode uh, that was uh, just what it was episode number 39 uh, and uh, he is uh, his gnome Diplom there on uh, on YouTube is the celebrated Mr. K uh, and he uh, is probably the uh, the most prolific poster. Of uh, CISL videos, uh, games, full games, uh, highlights, uh, uh, all star, you name it. Uh, uh, Ken has done a uh, yeoman's like uh, job of, of getting CISL uh, stuff there into the, uh, the history vaults there of YouTube. Uh, and uh, we tip our cap to him as well uh, as we continue to uh, try to hopefully unearth a few more stories about uh, the various little idiosyncrasies of that league and, and other exploits, not only in indoor soccer and soccer generally, but all kinds of sports, all the leagues and teams and and various events that uh, were in the realm of professional, but to somehow have uh, some uh, escaped into the ether, uh, that's what we're here uh, for uh, each and every week on this little show. Uh, if you've not uh, enjoyed or gotten a taste of some of our other episodes, well, what are you waiting for? Uh, you can uh, bookmark us uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find uh, all of our uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes, hundreds now, actually. Uh, there you can uh, download or stream them. Do whatever you want. Uh, of course, why not just subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher? Uh, you know all the all the great places, whether at Spotify or uh, Apple iTunes or Google or uh, there's a whole you know you know if there's if there's a podcast uh, a player out there in the world, chances are really good that you will find good seats still available uh, for you. Available, as the name implies in those uh, feeds. Just uh, search it up and, uh, and and put it in and uh, make sure you get it each episode uh, each and every week. Uh, on our website, of course, you'll also find uh, all of our various links if you want to get our email newsletter each week. There's a link there to that. Uh, you want to get our social media feeds, follow us on Twitter. Why don't you? At Good Seats Still. Follow us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us on Facebook. There's a little page devoted to us there. And uh, email, of course, we'll receive those too. And hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Multiple ways to stay in touch, uh, and we love it when you do. Uh, someday we will uh, just have a a big thank you show uh, for all of our great uh, inquiries over the years. Uh, we're remiss in, in not sort of mentioning them all on the air, and we apologize for that, but some of that is just simply we're so focused on on getting the quality uh, content out each and every week. We don't have time to thank everybody. We We try to answer all of those emails, though, of course. Uh, And we love your suggestions, too. And and a whole bunch of shows have come out of those, too, especially if you've got connections uh, to the people that can make uh, those suggestions happen. So um, good things happen online uh, and hopefully we'll uh, continue to send some your way, too, if you follow us. And we appreciate you doing that. And of course, thank you for listening this week. Until next week, uh, we bid you fond adieu and uh, we appreciate it. We'll take care. Uh, You take care. I'll take care. Let's all take care, shall we? Uh, And we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.